Well, one way we show our love for God is by obeying his commands. And we've been in a series on the commands of Jesus. And I'm not sure that what I'm going to preach on this morning, we have ever really considered a command. Because if we have, we have not done a very good job of obeying it. Because we listen to the world rather than Scripture. And oftentimes those two are diametrically opposed. The sermon this morning is entitled, Be a Servant, because that's what Jesus told us to do. Be a servant. And if you are not serving somebody, somewhere, and I don't mean in your job you're getting paid for, I mean serving the kingdom in Jesus' name, how are you going to explain that? How are you going to rationalize that? How are you going to sidestep that? one day standing before the judge. Because when we get to heaven, it's not just a matter of our salvation. It's going to also be a matter of accounting for the stewardship that we've been with the gifts he's entrusted to us. And so if you have a gift of singing, but don't sing. If you have a gift of teaching, but don't teach. If you have a gift of Rocking babies, but aren't rocking babies. How are you going to explain that one day? Because Jesus commanded us to serve. Matthew 20, 25 through 28, and then chapter 23, verses 8 through 12, are just two of the passages that are replete throughout the New Testament of what Jesus told us to be like and what he told us to do. In Matthew 20, I'm going to get a running start at verse 17, just to provide the context of where Jesus pronounces this command on serving. And I want you to listen to me. And when we're done here today, I hope that either you're serving somewhere or you're convicted that you're not and do something about it. Matthew 20, 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside And on the way, he said to them, so he's preparing them for what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, command that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. In verse 25, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, but Jesus called to them, to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's skip over to verse 23. It's the same thing. 
over and over and over again. Jesus keeps drilling this into the minds and hearts of his disciples, but they never catch on until after his death, burial, resurrection. And the same is, recurs throughout the Gospels. Chapter 23, verse 8. You're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brethren. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called masters, for you have one master, the Christ. He, once again, he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And it goes on from there. Jesus tried to teach his disciples about servanthood. And they didn't catch on. And I wonder, do we? Let's bow together. Father, we have rationalized away our lack of service. We could pay somebody to do what we should be doing. We can sit in a pew and pay someone to, to sing or, or play an instrument or teach a Sunday school class or rock a baby in the nursery when we could be doing it. And so help us open our hearts and our eyes to the gifts that you have given to us and only us. And convict us, Lord, to exercise those gifts in the service of your kingdom and our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. The problem with service is it runs counter to everything our world teaches. Like so many, so many things we read in the, in the Gospels, in the Bible. The world tells us one thing, Jesus tells us another. The world shouts, Jesus whispers. The world gives one definition of success, Jesus gives an entirely different definition of success. Which one are we going to listen to and which one are we going to tune out? I read years ago of uh, one of Henry Blackaby's in-laws, I think it was his son's father-in-law, Henry Blackaby, the author of Experiencing God and had so much wisdom to offer. Uh, this son's father-in-law was vice president of a large company in Canada, had several thousand employees under him. But when you met him for an appointment, you went by all the big, expensively appointed offices to a small office in the corner that was his by choice. Every Friday afternoon, you couldn't even find him in his office because he would be out in the warehouse working alongside the other employees, filling orders long before the TV show Undercover Boss became popular. The man's name was Ted Stokes and he believed it was important enough to stay in touch with his employees. That he, he was not beneath him to roll up his sleeves and get his hands dirty as he worked side by side with him. And when he retired, there were so many cards and gifts and flowers and men and women sobbing as they related story after story of the difference he made in their lives both personally and professionally. Because for Ted Stokes, the measure of a man was not defined by his title or position or big office or preferential treatment or how many people he had underneath him. It was defined by the character of someone who knew how to serve and did not consider himself to be above anyone else or too good to do any menial job. 
In this series of commands by Jesus, the command for today is to be a servant. Have you ever thought about that? I haven't really thought about that as a command of Jesus. And when we aren't serving him, when we aren't exercising the gifts he has given us, then we clearly are being disobedient to his command because Jesus valued humility and a proper view of oneself because in the eyes of Jesus, everybody is equal. The, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one is more important. No one is any less important than anyone else. Jesus was someone, when you stop and think about it, who was higher than anybody could ever be at the, at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And Jesus came down lower than anyone could ever go, dying a death on a cross. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. No one has ever been so high and willingly gone so low like Jesus. And so not only did he command us to be a servant, but he embodied it perfectly. He personified it. Let me give you some, some background here. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for what will be his final conflict with his enemies here on earth. He and his disciples are part of a large contingent from, contingent from Galilee on a pilgrimage to celebrate the Passover, which is their, their high holy sacrifice at the temple on the Jewish calendar. And Matthew indicates there'll be a, there's a sense of foreboding in the air, a sense of dread as everyone feels that this dispute between Jesus and the religious leaders is going to come to a head when he gets to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happens. And so Jesus over and over again tries to prepare the disciples and he pulls them aside in verses 18 and 19 and he says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. So he's been preparing this all along. And what in the world happens? You would think the disciples would be talking among themselves and asking Jesus, what do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean? Going and, and you'll be handed over to to the Gentiles and you'd be mocked and scourged and crucified in three days. What in the world are you talking? That is not at all what happens. It's like what Jesus has said to them repeatedly just zooms right over their heads. They did not have ears to hear that because they're concerned about something else. The mother of James and John comes up to Jesus and she says, do me a favor. And he says, what do you want? And she says, command that these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and at your left hand when you come into your kingdom. And this shows the whole mindset of the group, specifically the mother of James and John, two ambitious young disciples. They know how to look out for themselves. And Jesus tells the mother, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, oh yes, not knowing what they were acknowledging, oh yes, we can do that. Whatever cup you're talking about, sure, we can do that. As long as it means places of prominence and priority when you come into your kingdom. In effect, 
Jesus is trying to tell James and John, you don't realize this now, guys, but in a few weeks, James, your life is going to be taken from you. And being one of the first followers to be killed for the faith. And John, you're going to be called to give a lifetime of Christian leadership and you're going to author some books and three letters that are going to end up in a collection called the New Testament. But when you are old and ready to retire, the emperor of Rome is going to banish you to this isle called Patmos. And there you're going to spend your remaining days. All this because you say you can sit at my right hand and at my left hand. But what you don't realize is my right hand and my left hand are not thrones on a kingdom here on earth. But my throne is going to be a cross where I'm going to die for the sins of the world. And, and my right hand is going to be suffering James and my left hand is going to be exiled John. And that's the cup of suffering that you're going to have to drink. So, what about the other 10 disciples? When they find out that James and John have jumped the gun and have gotten to Jesus before any of them could and asked for positions of prominence and power and influence, verse 24, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, at first I thought they were indignant because James and John had the gall to ask for something so selfish. But the more I thought about it, I think the other 10 were indignant because James and John thought of it first. And they said, my goodness, James and John are already elbowing for positions of power in the kingdom. And we've let the boat slip by us. We're indignant at that. So after three years of being with Jesus. The disciples just don't get it. They haven't understood the most fundamental truth that lay at the heart of everything Jesus was trying to teach them and everything he did. But before we criticize the disciples too quickly, let's realize how complicit we are in disobeying this command, how, how easy we are to overlook it because after 2,000 years, not many of us seem to get it either. Because look at what Jesus does. He calls the 12 together and he reminds them once more that one of the central tenets of his teaching is not about prestige and power and influence and how many people you can lord it over. That's what the Gentiles do. That's what the evil people do. Gentiles is not just a, a Gentile race. It refers to pagans in general. But Jesus is one who taught humility and servanthood. And the pathway to greatness lies not in how many people you have underneath you, but how many people you have over you in service. You know, Jesus said, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. That's what all the, the religious leaders do. But it shall not be so among you if you're a follower of Jesus. That's not what you're about. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Turn those tables of power and influence upside down. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, see how many people you can serve. 
If you want to be first in the kingdom, see how many people you can be a slave for. And then Jesus talks about himself. He refers to himself as the son of man in third person whom the Jews expected would pour out judgment on all the enemies of Israel and elevate Israel to the center of the world in power and influence. But the son of man, says Jesus, does not enter into his glory except through servanthood, suffering, and death on a cross. That's what Jesus taught. And that's what Jesus did, adding credibility to everything he taught. And that's what Jesus commands you and me to do as well. It's hard for us to understand because we are so much like the disciples. We are ambitious. And, and in America, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we work for prominence and power and prestige and respect and esteem. And we want to climb the ladder of success. And we admire all those movers and shakers and who've climbed that ladder. In short, the gospel has been in the world for over 2,000 years. And we still live like we don't understand the most fundamental command of the one we call Lord because it runs counter to the world and we are too caught up in the world to hear Jesus. And just as he kept correcting his disciples, he has to keep correcting you and me because he calls his, his disciples then and now to be servants just like he was. He calls us to live out the simple truth that greatness comes in humility and servanthood, and he wants us to learn and to realize and to grasp the truth that we do not attain prominence in the kingdom of God by getting ourselves first or elbowing our way to the front of the line. Instead, prominence comes by serving others, even becoming a slave of all for Jesus' sake. Because for Jesus, the way up is down. And you don't climb the ladder of success in the kingdom of God. You climb it downward to see how many you can serve. I've often wondered, you know, you go into a weight room. I can't say I do that very often. But you go into a weight room and you lift weights and you're inspired by these pictures of muscle-bound people on the walls who are all bulked up and, and have bulging muscles and just standing there. Physical specimens to inspire us. I've often wondered what would that look like for spiritual muscles? What would it look like? Who, what pictures should we have hanging on the walls of the sanctuary or hanging on the walls of the high, high, hallways of people who have been servants for Christ's sake? Would it be missionaries serving in faraway places that no one else wants to go? Would it be someone who works in the nursery, unheralded, unappreciated, and yet still fulfilling a calling? Would it be someone who washes windows or cleans toilets or vacuums the sanctuary without pay because they see it as an act of service? Maybe someone who cooks a meal and carries it to a neighbor who's had surgery or a death or 
or someone who's hungry. Someone who, maybe someone who works in the soup kitchen or in the clothes closet or just a, just a simple act of service to remind us that greatness in the kingdom of God is not how many people you lord it over, but it's how many people you serve under. It's the opposite of the world. And that's why it's so hard for us to listen, to hear, to believe, and to obey. John Turner was a famous British artist in the 18th, 19th centuries. And at the very height of his career, he was selected to work on a committee charged with making preparations for an important art exhibit in a British museum. Their task was to choose all the works of art that would be shown and to arrange them strategically in the exhibit hall. And at the end of the day, Turner was still going through uh, some of the, the pictures he had never seen before, and he noticed a canvas hidden away in a corner. And the painting was the work of some unknown country artist, and yet he was fascinated by it. He was amazed by it. And he told the others on the committee, he said, this work must be shown. But they were in no mood to consider another work. They had done their work and they were ready to go home. All the space is taken, they said coldly. They turned a deaf ear and realizing that he was going to get nowhere with his colleagues, Turner remained behind in the gallery after everyone left. And then he walked over to the choicest location, lifted a painting off the wall, and replaced it with the newly discovered piece. John W. Turner, a member of the Royal Academy of Art, chose to display a painting by an unknown country artist in the most prominent location in that gallery because the painting he had taken down was his own. The risen Lord comes to us and he calls us to give up our place on the front row for someone who might need it more. He calls us to set aside our own works of art, our own masterpiece in order to display the work of someone else. In other words, Jesus calls us to be servants, to serve each other and to serve our world for the sake of the gospel. Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and gave his life as a ransom to pay the penalty for our sin. And by doing that, he accomplished at least two things. He told us and showed us how high he could be and how low he was willing to stoop. And in doing that, he said, follow me. And when our founder embodied servanthood so perfectly and completely, how long will it take us to listen and catch on? There's so many places in our church that places a service that somebody needs to fill. Our nominating committee is working on it now, trying to place a round peg in a round hole because I, I'm just, I just believe that in the body of Christ, God's smart enough to provide somebody to do everything that needs to be done. So if something is being left undone, it's because somebody who has that gift is being disobedient. 
And so if you have a gift that you aren't exercising, why not? How are you going to explain that one day? Because trust me, if you ask God what he wants you to do, he will reveal it to you if you're open and willing to do it. But if you are not, I've learned this personally, if you are not and say, God, I'll do everything except this, or um, don't ask me to do that, then God may not reveal his will to you because why add one more step of disobedience to the pile you already have growing? But if you're open and willing to use your gifts, to exercise and be a steward of what he has entrusted to you, he will reveal that to you. And then you best obey. What would a hero in our church look like? Someone who's on their knees. Someone whose hands are dirty. First Baptist Tifton is known as the church built on love. And it is. But we could do more. Let's bow together. Father, at the cross, Jesus gave the perfect example of someone who came and taught servanthood and then lived and died for servanthood because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves and he served us perfectly, leaving the right hand at the throne of God and dying on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And then he commands us not to be like the world, not to try to lord it over people or boss a lot of people around or see how, how many we can be in charge over, but to see and actually compete for how many people we can serve. Because those who are going to be great one day are those who have served the most, the longest, and the best. So help us prepare for eternity. Help us prepare for the coming of the kingdom of God even now, not just by our salvation, but by our willingness to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.